So good evening. So how many of us think that we've uh, been here actually uh, three days <laughs> as, as opposed to 24 hours? Raise your hand if you think we've been here three days. Okay. Okay, we'll have a vote for deciding what consensus reality is. <laughs> so, so this is the end of the first full day or near the end. And I want to really uh, appreciate the practice uh, and of the practice of being present in the silent practice and being present in the speech practice, it takes a lot of attention and takes a lot of perseverance and some of it can feel new and a little um, unusual at times. Uh, We haven't done either kinds of practice so much. So I just want to appreciate the, the, um, really the effort to be present, which is actually all that we ever ask. We don't ask one to perform in a certain way, we just ask we just ask ourselves or really to, to keep being present as much as we can. So I invite us for this talk to continue with that practice of listening, as it were, to me, the words and so forth, but also having some inner awareness at the same time, to have some presence to uh, one's body, Again, it can be in a very light way, just maybe the hands on the knees or the lap. So the theme I want to explore tonight is that of the place of wise speech or sometimes called right speech in the context of awakening, in the context of the path of awakening, which is really the larger aim of the practice. In other words, our uh, practice of speech is part of a larger path in which we want to, we aspire to cultivate love and wisdom, compassion, the, what we might call the qualities of awakening. And so how does speech practice fit in that larger understanding? And then how specifically do we, can we add some further aspects of speech to what we've already explored? And I, I was reflecting that I think my practice of uh, wise speech uh, probably began in earnest, maybe a little over 20 years ago. And I had this very close friend who I was spending a lot of time with. And she said to me very bluntly one day, as was her want, (laughs) she said, you don't really practice right speech very much, do you? (laughs) Whether she was practicing at that moment, who can say? (laughs) But... uh, But I had to actually look closely at myself and I had to agree that she was right, that I wasn't so conscious about my speech. I had been practicing at that point meditation for over 10 or 12 years. 
I thought of myself as practicing well. And so it's, it, it, it sort of uh, caught me by surprise. But when I was honest, I had to reflect that I often was rather automatic in my speech. I wasn't so conscious. And that I think she was right. And I don't know if I ever told her it directly, but I could appreciate her comment. <laughs> And so that this practice of speech, again, so crucial and so precious and that um, our skill in speech can make such a difference in our lives, whether we both um, say things that can lead to either suffering or connection And then how we work when we're receiving language that might be either skillful or unskillful. That it's amazing the power that words can have. Even if we we have a lot of spiritual practice or even a lot of wisdom. I remember hearing the spiritual teacher Ramdas once who had probably been practicing 30 or 40 years at that point. And he said, you know, when I'm with my family, spiritual practice goes out the window. I said, whoa, <laughs> that's a strong statement. Um, I don't know that it necessarily does, but it, as the saying goes, they installed our buttons. They know where they are. <laughs> we can say that of some of our family members. Or another way of saying it you know, in, in a more general way is that under stress, we regress. Have you heard that one? <laughs> Under stress, we regress, and that's true of a lot of uh, situations involving speech, that we can be triggered. It, we know that it doesn't take much to trigger us, probably. All of us probably know one or two words that someone could say right now that would take us from this peaceful moment at Spirit Rock, you know, quiet, wonderful, wonderful soup tonight, wasn't it? And someone could say just a few words, and we'd be, where would we be? <laughs> We could be back being a four-year-old, maybe, or earlier, <laughs> right? And so we know that that can happen, and we see that happening in the world all the time. We see all sorts of unskillful speech, and you know, at, often at, in places of a lot of power. You know, it's quite—it's quite, it's quite uh, when we look carefully at speech in the world. It's not always a pretty picture. We would have liked the members of the U.S. Congress to come here and do this retreat. <laughs> maybe, that, maybe that comes later. Maybe we have to develop it to a certain level, and then and we'll try with the U.S. Congress. But um, anyway, and I say that from some experience. When I was uh, younger, I worked in the U.S. Congress, one of my past lives. <laughs> Uh, and I saw it up close, and it was, um, of course, there were some wonderful people there, but a lot of it wasn't so pretty. And it was, uh, I was a 19-year-old, and it was, some, it was actually disillusioning somewhat when I, was, when I was there. This is how uh, the great uh, Vietnamese teacher Thich Nhat Hanh talks about speech practice. And this is on the uh, handout which, which you have, or the material that you have. Aware of the suffering caused by unmindful speech, 
and the inability to listen to others, I vow to cultivate loving speech and deep listening in order to bring joy and happiness to others and to relieve others of their suffering. Knowing that words can create happiness or suffering, I vow to learn to speak truthfully with words that inspire self-confidence, joy, and hope. I am determined not to spread news that I do not know to be certain and not to criticize or condemn things of which I am not sure. I will refrain from uttering words that can cause division or discord or that can cause the family or the community to break. I will make all efforts to reconcile and resolve all conflicts, however small. Another phrase that I love comes from the uh, uh, Jewish uh, spiritual leader and activist named Abraham Joshua Heschel, who uh, walked with Dr. King in the 1960s in um, Alabama and Mississippi. He had a phrase called holiness in words. One aspires to develop holiness in words. And that's always stuck with me when I heard that. I like, I like that a lot. Very, quite beautiful. And yet the, the um, practice that we do with speech, I think, has to be set in a larger context. It's not just that we try to be skillful in speech, but that we really set it in the context of this whole larger, <clears throat> what we can call path of awakening. Or we, can, we could use different language, the, the path to come to love, or the path to come to wisdom, or the path to come to our deeper nature, whatever language we use, that speech is part of it. It's not the only thing. And it's valuable this first evening to show the place that speech practice has in the larger picture. And so what I want to do is to talk a little bit about awakening, talk then some about the, uh, the, the larger path to awakening and the different components of that path. And then lastly, Uh, talk about the place of speech practice and the traditional understanding of speech, which will complement what we were looking at this afternoon, and particularly a focus on the ethical dimensions, very similar to what Thich Nhat Hanh was talking about, using speech as a way to help bring about connection and and healing, and uh, not as much focus uh, on that quality of awareness, of speech as an awareness practice. That's something we're using to join with that more ethical practice. So I think most of you know the very word Buddha comes from the word meaning awake. Bud is the word linked with awake. And it's a metaphor, you know, it's saying that I the Buddha was once asked, some of you know, are you, because they saw this glow and he's kind of, we, in our language we would say he had good vibes. <laughs> good vibes guy. And his people who knew him in the past and they saw him after this transformative experience, they asked, who are you? you know, are you a god? Are you something other than human? Are you human? And he actually answered by really implying that he was not a god, but he was not really an ordinary human. He said, I am awake. 
in contrast really to the quality of being less than awake, somewhat asleep, that we could attribute to most human beings. And his teachings were about how to come to that place of awakening. In a more, in more maybe very ordinary language, we could say that to awaken is to awaken to our deep nature of love, wisdom, compassion, generosity, and so forth. You know, and one of the, one of the core teachings that we find in the, in the Buddhist tradition is the teaching of what are called the factors of awakening, which are the qualities of an awake person. They're qualities like mindfulness and energy and inquiry, joy, a tranquil mind, uh, a deeply concentrated mind, uh, an equanimous mind. A contemporary um, Bengali woman named Deepama has been inspiring to many people. I, m- I met her... Um, Uh, some time ago, uh, she died in 1990, but was one of the great practitioners of the 20th century and an inspiration to many people and uh, a teacher to people like Joseph Goldstein, Jack Kornfield, Sharon Salzberg. And I met her once. She actually um, came and stayed in my house for a while. (laughs) It wasn't really my house. It was the one I was living in at the Insight Meditation Society. And I gave it up to her family and her for a week, but I got to spend time with her. And, but what I liked best about her, she was very, had very deep concentration powers and seemed to live in a place of love and care. Jack Kornfield once asked her, what's in your mind? What's in your everyday ordinary mind? And her answer was three things, concentration, loving kindness, and peace. Where's her ordinary mind? That sounds fairly awakened to me. You know? But we can really think of it as the, the, the awakening is when those qualities of love and wisdom and compassion, which we know at times, we have experiences of being awake in that sense. We know those experiences. And one way, fairly simple, that I like to think about awakening or enlightenment, it's not some big spectacular thing far off necessarily, but that it's really when those qualities stabilize more and more, and so they're around more and more of the time, and they're around a lot of the time. And that's definitely possible in our practice, that those qualities of peace and wisdom and love, through practice and through association with community, like-minded people, can get stronger and stronger. That awakening is something um, quite real. And there's this beautiful chant that is often done in uh, monasteries or sometimes in retreats, which goes like this. Swakato Bhagavata Dhammo Sanditiko Egaliko and it's really expressing the qualities of being awake and saying that it's accessible to people, that it's there, it's not some far-off imagined experience, that the words, sanditiko, uh, I'll start at the beginning, swakato, bhagavatadamo means discovered, and proclaimed by the Buddha. 
Sanditiko means apparent, here and now, or directly visible, that that quality of being awake is something that we can access. The quality of being present, aware, and again, we experience moments of it, but the teaching is that it's accessible. And again, the sense of awakening is it just kind of the moments, there just are more moments of it. <laughs> it kind of can make it sense of it in a simpler way. It's not, sometimes we imagine what is awakening. It's some far off fireworks. When I really meditate and get quiet, I'll have some fireworks. It's almost like my mind will explode and I'll just have bliss for the rest of my life. Does anyone have that idea? Enlightenment? <laughs> Uh, and I think it's a little simpler. It's really, we can see that we have awake qualities all the time. And all we want to do is have more of them. It's a little simpler like that. Sanditiko, apparent here and now, directly visible. Akaliko, timeless, immediate, present, like accessible. Ehipasiko means come and see. Basically, check it out. You know, that it's, that it's something that we can see. Opanayiko, onward leaning. And Pachatamwe, Ditapo, Winyuhiti, experienceable by the wise. There's a, a, a beautiful expression of this awake quality that I use a lot in my practice, which I also wanted to share with you, which I learned from um, the Tibetan tradition. And it's really an expression of this kind of awake mind, which I say to myself uh, many times a day. It goes like this. And just see if you can feel this quality of awareness. Let your awareness be open like the sky, pervasive like the earth, unshakable like a mountain, shining like a flame, lucid like a crystal. It's from the 16th century in Tibet from a um, text by uh, Dakpo Tashi Namgyal, which was one of the great teachers of uh, some of the Tibetan awareness practices. And yet, that quality of awakening was the result of a lot of work and a lot of practice. But we have to really start where we are. The Buddha started his path basically being a fairly sheltered and deluded person, believe it or not. He was protected, as some of you know the story, he was protected by his parents who had the prophecy that he would either become a great sage or a great ruler. They wanted the first. No, no, they wanted the second. <laughs> Mistake. <laughs> Maybe say, they wanted the second. They wanted him to be a great ruler. Forget the sage stuff. We want him to take care of the, this small kingdom that he was in charge of. And so they did what they could to protect him, from, they thought, from any signs of suffering. They thought if he was in, somehow if he was in connection with suffering, he would have the urge to become wise. And so they kept him within the palace. They kept him in a sheltered place. 
They didn't let him see any people who were old or sick. They didn't let him see death. They really kept him incredibly sheltered. And there's this story that sometime when he was um, actually in his late 20s and he had a family, and he still didn't really know much really about the world, he ventured outside the gates of the palace and on successive nights, he met what are called the four messengers that told him that there is actually suffering in the world. He met on the first night an old person, on the second night a sick person, on the third night a corpse, and on the fourth night he met a wandering yogi who was in search of awakening. And this had such a profound effect on him, it shattered that sense of uh, protection and complacency And he saw that he himself did not know and he needed to go on a path. And he went on this deep pursuit of um, understanding, really understanding the roots of suffering and how to transform it. And he came up really after many, many years, he found he had to go beyond what was being offered from the great teachers of his time. He was taught by some of the great yogis of his time, did a lot of deep, concentrative meditations, but he found it was not quite adequate, and he had to, in a way, look for himself. So there's this very beautiful thread in this tradition of the importance of looking for oneself and really looking very deeply and carefully. You know, And there are other texts where it's said, don't take this as true just because someone said it just because a teacher said it or it's from the tradition or it's in the text. Really look for yourself and see what's true. It's a very beautiful aspect that we carry forward with this meditation teaching. That We have a lot of respect for each person's looking and finding for oneself. And so he came to this place where he saw deeply into the roots of suffering. And supposedly achieved this full awakening to his own nature, to the roots of suffering. And for a long time, he decided uh, not to teach anyone. He just wanted to stay by himself. And he thought that in some ways, what I would have to teach is quite simple and no one would believe me. And there wouldn't be people who are really interested. And it's said, and this is kind of a legend, that at that point the king of the gods came down and urged him to teach. The king of the gods, uh, Brahma, came down, this is on the level of myth, came down and said, please teach. There are some beings with but little dust over their eyes. They will understand. And he said, okay. (laughs) And he he began about uh, 30, was it... uh, Yeah, about 45 years of teaching. The first teaching that he gave was to some of his old fellow yogis who basically thought that he he had actually given up the true path when he went off on his own. They thought that he was what the Southern Baptists would call a backslider. (laughs) Do you know that term? (laughs) There's an old gospel tune which goes, backslider, backslider. 
better watch out. <laughs> so, um, but he came up with a, he, he gave a teaching to the, these first former friends, really, that, was, that actually had the core teaching in, in really in the whole tradition, which is called the teaching of the Four Noble Truths, which probably most of us have heard uh, one or multiple times. And I'll, I won't go through in so much detail, but just to say that it's really a teaching of, four, of so-called four truths or four um, ways of understanding, we might say. The first two are the truth of suffering and the truth of the cause of suffering. And the latter two, we might say, are the truth of the possibility of going beyond suffering and then how to do it. So it's really teaching of suffering in its roots, and the first two, and then freedom in its roots. That's what the teaching was about. And I'll say just a few words about the um, say a few words about the first two truths. And it's one of the most concise ways that has ever been expressed is in another teaching, which is actually one of my favorites. It's a very concise way of talking about the roots of suffering and very relevant for our speech practice. It's called the teaching of the two arrows. And anyone who's been around me knows that I love it. And you've heard it <laughs> before, because I, I really like it. It's a powerful, simple teaching. Uh, the Buddha said, he, well, he was asked a question. He said, everyone experiences pleasure and pain. What distinguishes a practitioner from a non-practitioner? Everyone has pleasure and pain. What's the difference? How do people deal with that? And, and his answer gave a very interesting sense of what, um, of what suffering is and what the roots of suffering are. So he said that everyone has some degree of unpleasant experience in his or her life. And he said that's like, or that's as if, we are all shot by an arrow. And he called that the first arrow. We're all shot at times by the arrow of, we might call it pain, the unpleasant experience. It's the unpleasant physical experience, which we have at times, the experience of unpleasant sensations in the body. Our bodies are vulnerable to sickness, to injury. At some point, we will all die. There's a certain necessary or almost a certain amount of pain that we have on the physical level. And we all also have a certain amount of emotional pain. We have sadness or grief or we have, sometimes we have uh, anger, which can be very painful at times. Sometimes we're not treated right. We're treated unfairly or unjustly. And there can be a kind of uh, pain there. And so everyone has a certain measure of pain, some more, some less. It's a given. And what the Buddha said was that uh, both practitioners and non-practitioners all have that first arrow. They're all shot by the first arrow. We're all shot by the first arrow. What distinguishes a practitioner from a non-practitioner is basically what one does with the first arrow. He says that 
a non-practitioner, because of the first arrow, will tend to shoot a second arrow as if that would help get rid of the pain of the first arrow. And so what does that look like? You know, what that means is that you can notice it. When we have physical sensations that are unpleasant, what do we do? We often tend to contract around it. Have you noticed that just with the sitting? When I've talked with doctors who say that 80% of physical pain is not the original stimulus, but it's the contraction around the sensation. It's one of the reasons why meditation can be so valuable for, in the medical field. You know, why people can learn to relax. Even something is there, and it maybe won't go away, but one can learn not to shoot the second arrow, not to have that other 80% of the pain. So it's huge, right? It can be potentially very, very big. And we, that's pretty obvious probably with emotions, right? That we can have some difficult encounter with someone that takes 10 minutes and we can be in emotional funk for three hours, three days, three months, three years, right? Because of 10 minute experience. You know, and that we can, when something happens interpersonally, we can uh, react emotionally and with our thoughts and uh, suffer a lot. Shoot the second arrow, blame ourselves, blame the other, blame both. And it's also, you know, I think a lot of conflicts are based, and this is really related to what Oren was saying, a lot of conflicts are based on two people or two countries shooting second arrows at each other. We have received pain. You did something bad to us. We will do something bad to you. As if that would help. That's where that understanding that we were exploring earlier, when we're empathic, we can actually see people think that's going to help. But we can also see that it's not so skillful to keep shooting second arrows. And so what we learn to do, what the practitioner learns to do is not to shoot the second arrow. And we need training for that. And so we, we could say that the first arrow is pain and the second arrow is suffering. You use suffering in a special way. Suffering means the reaction, the almost compulsive reaction to the first arrow. We can call that suffering. So it's using the language in a somewhat precise way. And what we can do with our practice is, in part, we learn how to be with the first arrow with not, without shooting the second arrow. Not easy, right? We learn to be, at times, with what's difficult physically without shooting the second arrow, without judging ourselves and uh, without tensing so much. We learn to relax we learn to be present and relax around difficult emotions, difficult thoughts. We learn how to be skillful with them. And you can see how it's so, this is such a powerful practice for speech. If we've learned not to shoot the second arrow so much, 
we can be present when we get, have difficult experiences related to speech and not be so reactive internally and also in the kind of words that we choose. But it takes that training. We have to be able to be and train to be with what's difficult, which is generally what none of us signed up for when we were interested in meditation. When I was first interested in meditation, I was in it for bliss and understanding. (laughs) Is anyone else? (laughs) Anyone else? Original motivation? In my first meditation retreat, I sat next to someone and he said, I hope you're not afraid of suffering. (laughs) I said, I don't know what I said. I probably said something like, I probably, I just was silent, but internally I said, I didn't come here for suffering. (laughs) You know, and, but I think he later became a close friend. But, but there's something about that learning that's crucial. And this is really what the teaching is about, because the first two truths are really Um, another way of expressing that teaching of the two arrows. We could say that the first truth is that there there is suffering, meaning that we often shoot the second arrow. And the second uh, truth is that it comes out of a kind of compulsive reaction in which we try to push away something. Or in a like way, sometimes we grab hold of something in a compulsive way. And the third truth is really that we don't have to do that. We can learn to have a certain balance and peace, really, no matter what is occurring. Another way of saying that is we learn tools and we learn skills so that everything is workable. That's the spirit of this practice. Everything becomes workable as we go further in the training. And then the fourth truth is the so-called Eightfold Path. It's really the practical path by which we move towards awakening, by which we learn not to shoot the second arrow. And it's made up of these eight components. And speech is one of them. It's pretty amazing. You know, it has, generally, there are these three categories, and this is where speech fits in, the whole path of awakening. The first grouping is usually called the grouping of the ethical factors. That includes, uh, I'll use the word right, Um, that's the term that you usually find in translation, includes right livelihood, right action, which is basically the ethical precepts, and right speech. And I actually don't like, I'll just, a little footnote here, occasional footnotes in talks, but that um, the word right is a little problematic. The word in the Pali language is sama which actually has, is closer to something like, it's like words in the English language, like summary. So I would translate it more as mature or developed or cultivated, um, all of the factors. I think that's closer to the, to the original meaning. Right was the word that was chosen by Victorian English translators. Bless their hearts. <laughs> okay. Okay, I won't, I think a little bit of not, not entirely right speech there, but it happens. <laughs> so, so we have these three ethical aspects of the path. We also have uh, two aspects related to wisdom, which are a call, I would call it mature understanding and mature intention. So we work with understanding and wisdom, and we also work with uh, our, intention, our intentions. 
And then there are uh, three aspects related to meditation. Uh, I would call mature effort, uh, mature concentration, and mature mindfulness, where you could say well-developed mindfulness, well-developed concentration. And so you can see that speech, interestingly, is one of the eight factors of the path, which I felt was always found interesting. Sometimes we think of these ancient traditions. Everyone was just being silent and doing meditation all the time. So why is speech one of the eight factors? Interesting, isn't it? I've, that's been interesting for me to think about. But when you actually read the old text, they were actually talking a lot. They did have retreats, but their everyday lives typically involved quite a lot of meditation, but quite a lot of talking. They were always getting invited for dinner places. <laughs> read the text, you'll see that. There's a lot of, a lot of talking there. And so speech was actually an important area for their practice. And it's related, as you can see from what we've done so far, it's very much related to these other factors, to wisdom. For, you know, for example, the wisdom to know about the difference between pain and suffering, to know the roots of suffering. The, the teachings of mindfulness, very crucial as we've seen. The main ways that speech practice was uh, explained in the tradition is what I've referred to as the ethical guidelines of speech. And they're really important for our practice. And I've mentioned them, and they were on the handout that was sent out ahead of the retreat. So I just want to take the rest of the time here and unpack a little bit what these guidelines are, because they're really also very crucial for our practice. I mentioned they're really a whole area where we can practice. And these are the guidelines that um, could be reconstructed in a simple way, as they are on one of the uh, sheets that you have. Uh, I like to reconstruct these guidelines as, first of all, learning to be truthful. Second of all, learning to be helpful in one's speech. Thirdly, learning to come from a warm heart. And fourthly, having appropriateness of speech, which is especially connected with timing. So we can especially, when we work with speech, we can work with these guidelines in a few different ways. And I'll unpack them a little bit more in a moment. But I just wanted to say that these can be, uh, these can be guidelines that we use to notice, am I violating the guidelines? You know, we can look at ourselves, we could even probably reflect now and say, how often am I untruthful? How often am I truthful? To what extent is my speech sometimes helpful or not helpful? To what extent uh, do I speak out of a good heart? And to what extent do I have good timing? And I'm appropriate in other ways. Or to what extent do I pay attention to that? And we can also, we can ask that question, we can use that as like a guide for our very behavior. We can also use it as a way to be mindful. If I notice myself in a given moment not being so truthful, I can stop right in the moment and ask, okay, Donald, what's happening? You know, what's going on in me? Let me look, let me see what's there. We can also use those guidelines as intentions. You know, like for example, um, at a time when I was doing a lot of work with a small group on speech over about a six-month period, I put these four guidelines up next to my telephone. And whenever the phone rang, I would say to myself, 
truthful, helpful, warm-hearted, good timing. Hello. <laughs> it's an intention practice like we've been doing. And it's still up there. And you can use that. Or if I go to meetings, I would have those four guidelines. And I would look at them. It doesn't mean I'm perfect, but it means that I'm working with intention. can use them like that. can use them here. I had one student who, whenever she was talking with her teenage daughter, which was a challenging relationship at times, she would write the four guidelines in her hand and be speaking to her daughter with the guidelines in her face. And she said it made a difference. So they can really be used in that way to, as a core part of our speech practice, to uh, remind us, to give us a framework for evaluating how we're acting, to be spurs for our intentions. So let me say a little bit about those four. So truthfulness may be the most important one. Sometimes it's said that being truthful is the outer expression of our own inner clarity. And when we take this kind of guideline, it starts to shine light on the extent to which we don't always tell the truth. And we may not have so many outright lies, hopefully, but probably most of us have uh, types of speech that are not fully truthful in more subtle ways. What are some of those ways? We may, what? We may exaggerate. Anyone exaggerate? One or two people. (laughs) Three, four, five. We may exaggerate. We may do things for our self-image. I remember um, when I was a teenager, I thought I had big feet. And you know how, as a teenager, what does... Everyone, most people think their bodies are somehow not quite right. Does anyone relate to that? (laughs) Okay, I often ask for little polls. Okay, anyway, does anyone... I think, I think that's fairly common. Even people who would be seen by others as meeting conventional standards of beauty, they, they might think, oh, you know, everyone thinks I look well, but I know that my right ear is three millimeters too long <laughs> or whatever. Anyway, I thought that my feet were too big. And whenever anyone would ask what size shoes I wore, I always downgraded it from 12 to 11 and a half. <laughs> and I noticed even 20 years later, I was getting shoes and it was not really that core an issue as an, you know, as an adult for me. But I was, still, I was still just the residue. I'd still exaggerate. Someone asked me what size shoe you wear. I wouldn't exactly tell the truth. So when we do this kind of speech practice, we get to look at that stuff, right? We get to look at where we exaggerate, where we do things for self-image, where we tell half-truths and so forth. And... Uh, it can be very, very interesting to take this as a practice, to really work with this in a sustained way. You know, it's something that we can do some here and we can also do at home. The second, the second guideline and what's, uh, is to be helpful. And what's really interesting is that we're asked to, for our speech to manifest all four of these guidelines at once. Not just one, not just two, not just three, but four. In other words, not just to be truthful, but also to be helpful. Because I think we know we can be exceedingly truthful 
and not be helpful and not come out of a warm heart. We call that sometimes dumping. You know, or we, we can be, we can actually use truth as a weapon against someone, maybe even against ourselves. And so what's interesting is that we take on these other dimensions of speech. We, we try to be helpful. We try to be constructive, you know, and we can see what that means in different ways. We, we can see when we're not so helpful or when we're being harsh or when we're being trying to say something that's trying to put someone down. We can notice all that when we become more aware of that guideline. The third guideline is to um, come out of a warm heart or to come out of kindness, we might say. And that also is invited to be there. One thing that's important to see is that coming out of a warm heart doesn't mean being overly nice in our speech. That we can actually be very firm and clear and still be grounded in our heart. That's hard, right? That's something we'll look at in the last few days when we look to challenging speech situations. How can I stay in my heart and say something that's difficult to say, right? Not so easy. How can I be firm with someone and not go into my antagonistic mode? Not so easy. There's a whole, could be a whole training in that. How can I, I like to think, some of you know that the word for loving kindness in the Pali language is metta. I like to think about what does it mean to develop tough metta, like tough love, right? <laughs> and I think, we, I think that's part of it. I just wanted to mention that because we could take these guidelines and think it all means being overly nice, like a nice, a nice meditator, very sweet, kind of a pushover. <laughs> it's not really what it's about. You read the old text, the Buddha is actually often extremely firm with people. He says things they don't want to hear. And that's part of um, wise speech or mature speech. And it can be really incredibly, it can cha- totally change the situation. When I was exploring speech a lot, I was talking to my mother and she remembered a time when she heard a talk by a man named Robert Lifton. I don't know if anyone knows, anyone know who Robert Lifton is? He, he was actually one of my teachers at college. He's a great man. He was, he's done a lot of work on human rights and he's a psychiatrist who's done a lot of groundbreaking work. And um, she heard a speech by him and at the end of the speech there were questions. And the first person who asked the question was a person who apparently really misunderstood some important things he was saying. And there was almost like she said, a collective groan went over the whole audience. And probably everyone expected to, for him to say, that's not what I meant at all, right? or something with that kind of tone. And she remembered 10 years later what he said because it came out of warmth. She remembered him saying, oh, I really see how you could think that or I really see how you could go there. And it's a really interesting idea. You know, and he, he went in that kind of, with that kind of tone while getting around eventually to making the point. But he approached it through, we might say, through empathy and connection. And it had such an impact on my mother. It took, right, 30 seconds, right? 
And when I asked her about speech practice, this is what she remembered 10 years later. Quite an impact, wasn't it? Quite an impact. So that's that quality of the warm heart. And then last, we could say, is the guideline of appropriateness. Let the speech be appropriate. Let it have uh, good timing. And it's really an invitation to see how much of our speech is appropriate, how much of our speech is distracted or just chattering. The Buddha was particularly looking at speech which is just sort of distracted and going off and off. And he thought that was problematic because it often went right into greed, hatred, and delusion. And so he, he, he invited us to look for the, at the appropriateness of our speech, to see how much we are just chattering on, how much we're talking about others in a way that's maybe not so helpful. And so we can really work with these guidelines. We can uh, take them as practices here. We can especially work with them at home. We might want to take, um, take one guideline for a week. Bring it home. You know, use these, use these practices like, you know, like I was mentioning, put them on sheets of paper in front of you. you know. You find ways to work with them um, in, in all the speech. And so maybe uh, to conclude here and say that um, the core of wise speech in the tradition are these ethical guidelines. We want to connect them to these other areas of developing awareness of speech practice as awareness practice, and also some of the tools and techniques of nonviolent communication with that interest in empathic connection. You can see how this all goes together. This is sort of interwoven, that we need the mindfulness and the wisdom, as well as these guidelines. And that together, they can really help our use of speech be a really full-fledged practice, which is quite beautiful. It can be, as we've we've been saying, we can have our everyday speech in the world really be connected with the other parts of our practice. I think that was the interest in making this one of the eight factors of the path. He wasn't saying that the real action, you know, that the only real action is on the meditation cushion. He was saying that we can really have significant development by looking at our speech. And that's the basis for this whole retreat. And we can see how it's both this really crucial area, but it's connected to our mindfulness practice, it's connected to our wisdom practice, it's connected to being able to see the two arrows in action and to make those connections so that we can really keep training to be developing in those qualities of awakening, in that open mind, the beautiful heart, the clarity of wisdom that we are really taught is our birthright. And we use speech practice to help 
keep developing and training. And that's our, that's our intention here. It's to really have us, by the end of the retreat, have this pretty developed sense of, in my speech, I can keep developing these beautiful qualities and know what to do. And know what to do as an everyday practice and know what to do with challenging situations. That's our, that's our intention. And I wish all of us well in that practice. (laughs) Sometimes after talks, it's helpful to just sit quietly for a while and let, let whatever was there with you resonate for a few moments. And then we'll move to our walking meditation. Again from Thich Nhat Hanh, aware of the suffering caused by unmindful speech and the inability to listen to others, I vow to cultivate loving speech and deep listening in order to bring joy and happiness to others and relieve others of their suffering. Thank you for your <clears throat> your kind attention and careful listening. And <clears throat> we have. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org/slash/donate.